Hello and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the cross-dressing films of the VHS era. Tonight we are talking about the 1971 Obscurity, Sometimes Aunt Martha Does Dreadful Things. My name is Luke and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, with the end of our slight detour into the mainstream box office, we now return you to our regularly scheduled program with a film that's suffering from a serious identity crisis. It doesn't quite know what it wants to be as scenes bounce between domestic comedy, murder mystery, and grindhouse. It's appropriate though, because as we're about to discuss, all the major characters here are all on their own journeys for self-identity. As of this broadcast, you can find 1971's Sometimes Aunt Martha Does Dreadful Things for rent on both YouTube and iTunes, and that's it. There is an HD Blu-ray for 20 bucks. We're back to obscure schlock here. Luke, how did you find out about this film? Uh, that's actually kind of an interesting story. So I I got this at a video store, but it was one of the strangest video stores I've ever been to. So this was, um, I'm originally from a tiny town outside of Tampa, Florida called Plant City. That's where the Florida Strawberry Festival is, if people have heard of that. Uh, but anyway, I was there visiting my dad in probably... 2000 and maybe 2005 2004 somewhere around there and we found this video store that was out in the middle of nowhere if you're from plant city and you know about this please contact me it was called gall's video and it was built into an an old like roadside motel like Picture the quality of the motel in Mountaintop Motel Massacre or, or Mountainside Motel Massacre. I don't remember which it is. Um, but anyway, so it was an old hotel, but they had turned it into a video store. And this guy, like his movies looked like no one had ever rented them. Most of them were still sealed. Tons and tons of like big, big box rarities. Uh and he was like, yeah, I've just kept buying them, even though I don't rent anything because, like, I like having them. So anyway, I bought, no, I probably bought, like, 200 movies from him for a grand total of, like, 50 bucks or 100 bucks. And this was one of them. It's, uh, it's a really cool box. It's, it's a big box on active home video, uh, which is, I only have a few movies from them. They're pretty obscure. Uh, and it's the box is kind of like faded psychedelic covers uh, cover, kind of like the um, introductory credits. And on the back, it says one murder leads to another and another and another when a deranged jewel thief decides to eradicate anyone who threatens to foil his plans as his paranoia grows. He takes on the personality of an imaginary Aunt Martha and wreaks havoc on a quiet suburban community. His rampage ends with the murder of the one victim he could never outsmart. All which right. is, is pretty misleading, actually. Yeah, just a little bit. Uh, his final victim is probably the dumbest person in the movie. 
Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the guy who plays his final victim, his name is um, his name is Wayne Crawford, and he actually had a really interesting career after this movie. First of all, he's in a ton of stuff, um, but he became a writer and director as well. Uh, so he wrote Barracuda, um, the killer fish movie. He wrote Snake Island. Uh, he did the story for the remake of Valley Girl, which is really bizarre. Um, but uh, so he he's the only person, I think, who had a real career after this. The guy who plays Aunt Martha, uh, a.k.a. Paul, this was the only movie he was ever in. That is really surprising to me. Yeah, I think he's pretty good. I will say, so you kind of alluded to this in your intro, but I I wouldn't say I liked this movie or really in, enjoyed it that much, but I think it's going to be a really interesting movie to talk about. This is definitely a cult classic for a reason. I don't even know if it counts as a cult classic. I've never heard anyone talk about this movie. I think there's there's definitely some kind of cult following for it. But this film is just so specific in what it does and has just not enough mainstream appeal to qualify for that whole category of cinema. Oh, well, the writer and director didn't have much of a career. Um, his name's Thomas Casey. He he did some editing on some movies and some cinematography. Uh, but really, the only thing he did besides this is he wrote the movie Flesh Feast, which is a pretty cool, uh, a pretty cool little low budget movie. Actually, it also takes place in Florida. This is another very Florida movie, by the way. Yeah, it's very American. like creep. This could only happen in Florida. Yeah, I think specifically um, this is a Hollywood, Florida. For those who don't know, there's also a Hollywood in the state of Florida. Yeah, and it's pretty much middle of nowhere. Yeah, uh, don't don't let the fact that a mil a movie was filmed there uh, fool you into thinking it's also a like major producer of of cinema. That is not the case. No, it's it's quite rural. But the, so I pulled it up. The movie he wrote before this, Flesh Feast. This is the synopsis on IMDb. A ring of Nazis in Florida is in possession of the body of Adolf Hitler and plan to revive him so they can take over the world. Why haven't we watched it already? Uh, I don't remember it being that good. That's a shame. Or, or, or that interesting to talk about. Let me put it that way. I will say that uh, the issues this movie has isn't from a plot standpoint. I think just some scenes could have been written or paced out better. I you know, as far as the characters and you know, the roles they play and the way the story progresses, all that seems pretty natural. It's just, there's some dead spaces here and there. Yeah. I think the acting in this movie is pretty good for, for such a low budget, like obscurity. Uh, I think my biggest issue with it, and I'll elaborate on this more later though, is the tone. Like you said it, like if this movie had dispatched the efforts at comedy and the whole movie was like the last 20 minutes, I think it would be really good. It does make the last 20 minutes a little bit more jarring than it would otherwise be from the shift in tone. But yeah, it, I don't I don't feel like it was really 
the it was not the play. I, I think they needed to be somewhat consistent throughout the entire film because beginning, middle, and end all feel like completely different films. Yeah. So if you have not seen this movie, it's like one part heist movie, one part slasher, one part like psychedelic psychedelia, like uh, deviation was, um, and then one part like domestic comedy, and it, it's like a low budget horror spin on the odd couple and it just doesn't work the the comedy does not work for me it ends up being annoying but let's root oh first um i found this interesting i read an interview with wayne crawford the guy who plays stanley and uh he said that when he got the script he thought it was horrible he said he actually thought it was pretty dumb um but he was just happy to be offered the lead part in something. And so he said, yeah. I thought of Aunt Martha as the lead, but I guess it is Stanley, huh? I guess he gets more screen time. I think he's the only person in the movie we can really sympathize with. Yeah, maybe that or um, Vicky across the street. Yeah. So let there there are there's some specific things i really want to talk about but let's play the trailer first and uh, then we'll get into it yoo-hoo mrs baxter oh mrs baxter i've been wanting to talk to you in the worst way we've been meaning to invite you and stanley over for dinner some night we are not going to sleep with the light on again no way I know what you're up to. You're not fooling me. Stanley. Stanley. You can't have him. He's mine. Come on, pussycat. Here we go, A queer comedy from the alternate dimension of Florida is what one of those preview title cards read. <laughs> I have a feeling that that trailer was made after the fact, maybe for like a DVD release or something. That was definitely for an HD release. Uh, yeah, the, probably the, the Blu-ray that I mentioned earlier. It's on their official YouTube channel. The music, the music in it sounds very contemporary. Not, not at all like the music in the movie. Not at all. So before we get into the movie itself, you know, the, the premise, if you haven't caught it already, is that there's a pair of, of jewel thieves who are on the run in Florida. And one of them, the, the slightly older guy, he has taken to dressing as Aunt Martha in drag as a disguise but it's also kind of insinuated that he and Stanley are in a gay relationship and that he somewhat identifies with the role of a woman. Um, it, it's, it's all like innuendo and suggested. But with all that said, do you find this remotely like, like should we see this as offensive to trans people or even to people who cross-dress? 
So as usual, I did not look up anything about this film before I went into it. All I knew is that there was a dude who cross-dressed as an ant <laughs> character and then murdered people. So naturally, this being 1971, I thought it was going to be incredibly offensive. But I actually don't think it's that bad. I ask because movies like Dressed to Kill and Psycho and other movies of this ilk that feature a cross-dressing killer have been cited as offensive by the trans community. And, and I'm not trans. I'm not gay. I don't know if I'm the best person to speak to this. But I think the if I can paraphrase their critique, it's that these movies – one, they took advantage of the idea that in the 70s, cross-dressing was seen as really perverse, right? And it was associated with the real-life serial killers, and that association was probably played up in the press because it came across as scandalous. And so these movies contributed to the idea that there was something perverse about identifying with the opposite sex and that that perversity could include violence or murder. And I guess my my comeback with this movie in specific is it's never suggested that Paul, who dresses as Aunt Martha, identifies as being trans or even feminine. If anything, he's the more masculine character in the movie. There is a lot to go through here, so let's try to take it piecemeal, one step at a time. First, if I, I do not speak for anyone or any aspect of the trans community, I can only analyze it from a cis white male perspective as to does this tend to give off a vibe that I would see as, as offensive or as something that's derogatory? towards a certain uh you know group or like s social strata of people and i wouldn't really see psycho as that either so perhaps i have a flawed viewpoint here but if you think psycho is offensive towards the trans community then yeah this is probably going to fall into that that same niche right yeah so with with that disclaimer aside let's Let's talk about this character and these two's relationship for a minute, because this is the aspect of the movie that I find incredibly fascinating, actually, and, and deserving of having a conversation about. Yes, so, this, this is the reason to watch the film. So these two, as I understand it, they committed a robbery and Paul, the older of the two who dresses as Aunt Martha, killed the old woman who they robbed but told the other character stanley that he killed her and that he was under the influence of drugs and that's why he can't remember is that's i'm i have that right correct so it's not really clear whether they brought the jewels with them and then fled to florida and then killed the original aunt martha in her house and then assumed and then had uh her identity assumed i didn't get that impression at all i thought that they had committed the murder in baltimore where they used to live 
And that's why there's like an FBI wanted poster for them. And then they fled to Florida and they just rented this house. Oh, they just rented the house. Yeah, because and then how- the and then the the um disguise is just to throw off anybody. Yeah, although I don't think that's the real reason for the disguise. Well, for what information is provided to the viewer, we are not given any suggestions or hints or references to Man, I wanted to call this guy Aunt Martha the whole film, but I guess we're going to have to refer to him as his, as his regular name too. Paul. Paul. Okay. There's there's no indication that Paul had any interest or you know propensity to cross-dress before this very incident. Uh, maybe I'm reading too deep into it, but let me give sort of the, the 101 version of... this relationship so on the one hand i think these two are a couple and they're they're both gay but the younger guy stanley he still enjoys like going out with girls and flirting with them but then when it comes time to sex to have sex with girls he freaks out and like runs away so on the one hand they're they're in a relationship on the other, they're criminals together, and Paul is trying very hard to, to keep Stanley indoors, to make sure he's not recognized by anybody, to like control the criminal aspect of their relationship. And then the third sort of dynamic here is there are times where Paul actually takes on the persona of like an Aunt Martha or a mother and is like, scolding stanley and trying to control him and saying things like i don't know what i'm gonna do with that boy like it's it's very odd how they move in and out of all these different dynamics but i think that one of the main um i guess attributes of their relationship is paul gets insanely jealous that stanley is out seeing girls and he thinks that they're having sex I think that he maybe subconsciously dresses as a woman or came up with this idea because he thinks maybe that's what Stanley wants. That might be reaching. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's difficult for me to get into the mind of the guy who wrote this movie because I don't know how much of it is just playing on like tabloid fodder of the 70s. And how much of it is like a relationship that he actually wanted to flesh out and make this complex? Well, regardless of his intention when writing the script, what's important is what we managed to glean for it from it, right? Like that that's the important part. Yeah. So Paul's character is clearly psychotic. And he's probably been psychotic for a long time. Regardless of the cross-dressing, he was going to be doing some messed up things anyway, right? Yeah, and and he's really the only he's the only person in the movie who actually kills anyone. By the way, he convinces Stanley that he's killing people, but really, it's only been Paul. Well, apparently, Hubert kind of does a drive-by on somebody. Oh yeah, so about midway through the movie, this other character Hubert shows up 
from Baltimore, and he's basically blackmailing them, saying that he wants to stay with them. Uh, and he basically says, like, I'm tired of being lonely. And uh, if he if they don't let him stay with them, he'll turn them in. But he's also like trying to steal their jewels. But focusing back on Paul and Stanley, um, I think it's important to mention that this film, the way the screenplay is written, is that it drops the viewer smack dab in the middle of this complicated situation without providing really any details. You don't really get a full picture of what's going on until almost near the end of the film, like maybe 25 minutes before it's over. Are you really able to decipher the nature between Paul and Stanley's relationship and what exactly is wrong with Stanley to begin with? Do you think there's something wrong with Stanley or do you think he's just dumb? I think everybody has issues in this movie, but obviously no, nobody's as in bad a condition as Paul. Um, he's, he's obviously the, you know, tyrant of the film. Absolute monster. Uh, he's the one on the box with the knife. You know, he's got to he's got to be doing that stuff. He he's he is the the slasher part of this film. Stanley, I'm actually not convinced he's gay necessarily. He could either be bi or he maybe this is way too modern of interpretation. He could be asexual. He could be ace. Like I could see somebody from like 2015 watching this and be like, oh, that person's ace. But that's not going to stop Paul from trying to obviously groom this young man into being like a future sexual partner. It, it is odd. As I mentioned, it, the, the cross-dressing killer is a, a 60s and 70s trope. And even early 80s, I guess. That's when Dress to Kill came out. But I think it's unusual to have a gay relationship this central to the story from that period like i went through like a progression while watching this film where i was like okay these two are criminals they're buddy buddy and don't get along well wait aunt martha's kind of doing like a real weird psychotic maternity thing and then it kind of graduated graduated into oh are they fucking and then by the end of the film, I was actually convinced that they weren't actually a couple. It was just something Paul kept trying to force and Stanley wasn't going for it. That was my progression watching the film. I I think they are a couple or at least they have had sex together because there's one point where Stanley is lying in bed and he's joking with Paul that Paul wants to ball him and like then they get under the covers together it's it gave me the impression that they've at least had sex in the past there's a lot of 70s and late 60s slang in this that was kind of lost on me so I figured that was just something there I didn't necessarily think that was sexual but uh maybe I mean there's definitely Paul definitely says like I love you and puts his arm around Stanley and like it is is physical with him like I mean you may be right that Stanley's just kind of going along with it but I just that was the impression I had that that they at least had been a couple in the past 
think about it like this, right? Stanley's snakeskin patterned pants. <laughs> yeah, that he wears the whole movie. Wears the entire film. He does not take them off himself at all. And anyone who tries to take them off is met with the extreme disapproval and and resistance, right? We don't there's no way this dude is is fucking anybody because he can't even take his pants off. Yeah, he but he doesn't act take his pants off. But we don't see him react that way to Paul. We do at the very end. Well, there are other things going on there though. Yeah, but I think that Paul was taking advantage of the situation that he currently had Stanley in to get those pants off. And you could tell Stanley was not having it. I just can't imagine Stanley having a different reaction in any other situation. See, I I thought that he had the reaction to all the girls who tried to do it because either A, he actually wanted to be loyal to Paul, or B, Paul has him so programmed to feel like he belongs to Paul and that Paul is going to chastise him if he does have sex with somebody else that that's his programmed reaction it could be but there's just not enough information available to really prove one theory or another which is either intentional in the screenplay or is um maybe it just wasn't fleshed out as much as we're delving into it but i actually like that about the movie like I like that there's so much ambiguity about these characters and yet they're seemingly so complex and that their relationship has all these different dynamics. Like one moment, Paul actually does seem like Stanley's mother or aunt. And then in other scenes, he's clearly like head over heels in love with him. And then in others, he's like a scheming, you know, accomplice. It's just, it's weird to me how it, it, floats in and out of these different dynamics so going back to paul's cross-dressing um i i didn't get the impression that paul was cross-dressing because he was psychotic i got the impression that he was psychotic started cross-dressing and then that aspect of his life became intertwined with his like in absolute insanity it just sort of changed the shape of it on the surface added another another facet to it if you will because he really gets into this this aunt martha character like way too deep yeah i mean you have to figure that out as the viewer because that isn't spelled out to you in the beginning at the beginning you're like what the fuck's going on here you you have to piece it together and i i also think it's interesting that throughout the movie he goes in and out of his aunt martha voice like And it's not sometimes when he's dressed like Aunt Martha, he'll use the voice. But then sometimes when he's dressed like Paul, he slips into the voice as well. (laughs) So I saw that on and off. (laughs) Yeah, I saw that as like his personas are kind of merging. Yeah, all right. I can see that. Either way, he's, he's just unstable as fuck. Yeah, but there was one other scene I almost forgot about that made me feel like they were a couple. And that's, there's 
Oh, and I, I want to talk about this scene altogether. Um, there's a scene where Stanley comes home with this girl that he's been with all day. And like they've done coke together and they've been drinking together. And Stanley's really fucked up. But she really wants to have sex. And Stanley's like, no, you can't come inside. Like my Aunt Martha will disapprove. And then he's also freaking out because she's trying to get him undressed. But she strips and gets him into the bed. And Aunt Martha does show up and is basically threatening to kill this girl. He says, you, you, you heard this in the trailer. He says, you can't have him. He's mine. He belongs to me. And he says, you stinking whore. You're dead. And while he's doing this, Stanley is like clinging to him and hanging off of him. And he keeps saying, I need you, Paul. I need you. And that is suggested to me that Stanley was like turned on, just not for the girl. I didn't see that as a, as a sexual thing. I saw it as a like defense mechanism, you know, like a child runs to their mom when they feel scared or frightened, you know, they hug under the skirt, <laughs> hug the leg. Yeah, but, maybe. But I, it, either way, it is very clear from this scene, which is very early on in the film, that these two have a very dysfunctional relationship that you'll learn all about in the scenes ahead. Yeah. But I was curious to get your take on this scene altogether because it's very strange, especially in a 70s film, to see a situation with the gender roles so reversed where the woman is pretty much raping the man. Yeah, I had the, the same feeling. And, you know, if you were to swap the roles real quick, then it would be just like every other film we've been watching. I was thinking that if I was watching a movie... And the man was doing this to a woman, basically getting her drunk and, and stoned and pushing her on the bed and forcing her to take her clothes off and like groping all over her. Like, I don't I would be very uncomfortable watching that scene. Like, I have a really hard time watching rape in movies. It's one of the only things that bothers me. But this scene it bothered me a little bit, but not to the extent that it would have if it's a woman. And maybe I'm revealing my sexism there. But it's it's an odd thing to see in a movie from this time. Most definitely. Um, I don't know. I felt about as uncomfortable the same way. Uh, I would say that this is definitely not as graphic as other things we've seen with the roles reversed as they normally are. Because as I we've discussed, these pants never come off. Yeah, I iron snakeskin pants. I I think that might be part of it. It, it. All right. So I think I might not have been as bothered. One, because it doesn't get as explicit. Two, I think the whole time that she's going to get caught and be killed by Martha. So I, I don't actually think that she's going to like go very far in this sexual assault. And then three, there's always that unfortunate stereotype in our society that like women can't be the sexual aggressors. And so even though I don't think like I know that's not true, it 
I still have the social expectation that like a woman would be in more danger than a man would be in. I think it's better to phrase it as um, a man cannot be raped by a woman. I think that is the, the way to phrase it. Yeah, but I definitely don't believe that. No, abs- um, it's absolute like bullshit. But right. saying, like when if you look up any story about a female teacher, high school teacher taking advantage of a young male student, go to the comment sections of your local news agency <laughs> and you can see exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's the unfortunate like, like, you know, yo, she's hot. Why did you exactly? Report her? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, do you think that this scene is trying to be funny? Man, I don't know what this movie was trying to do half the time. It, it's so, it's it's like a grab bag of of random things. Like, look at let's look at the soundtrack briefly, right? When this movie starts with the credits, you have like this uh, montage of scenes from the film or stills with that are just like colored as like um, what do you, what do you call it? It's kind of like negatives but with color. It's very psychedelic. Psychedelic, right? Yeah. Music that's playing during the credits is like something that you would you would hear for like um, an A and E biography on some celebrity. It's like so upbeat that it doesn't really match what goes on in this film at all. And then no. we get to scenes in this film that involve clubs or restaurants. Then you get like the normal seventies rock vibes that you would expect in a film like this. But then when you get to the domestic comedy aspects of this film the soundtrack turns into something that you would expect for like leave it to beaver or something right you got like the high flute tones the the real like sing songy jingles going on you know what i'm talking about like andy griffith show and all that yeah it really does feel like it's trying to be like the odd couple yeah at, at points and like play on that same kind of humor and by the way the the screen flashes to those like psychedelic negatives whenever Paul kills somebody too. We don't actually see gore in this movie. We yeah. get like a freeze frame with the psychedelic colors and the like acid rock wah-wah noises. And I actually, actually really like that. I like that kind of imagery though. Like it's one of the things I like about movies from this era. If you are making a murder scene in the 70s and you do not have the technical know-how or budget for gore i think this is a great replacement yeah and you know there's i think there's different kinds of attempted comedy here but the reason i brought it up in reference to the sex scene is i can imagine when this guy wrote the movie like two thought processes i could imagine him thinking like I'm going to get I'm going to put a scene that shows how like innocent but also traumatized Stanley is and how he can't have sexual contact at least from women and this is really going to like show his character. Or he could be thinking like wouldn't it be funny if a woman was attacking a guy? Like women don't want sex so I'm going to subvert expectations. Ha 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 ha. Like, I don't know which he's thinking. 
Yeah, and, and I, I had the same thought too, but like I honestly don't know. I don't know what the intent be. Yeah. Let's talk about another scene that I, I feel like is really trying to be the odd couple. There's a scene where it's the morning and Martha has made breakfast for Stanley. And Stanley mocks Paul by putting on the Martha wig. And Martha says something like, you know what you need? You need a broomstick up your ass. And uh, and they start like chasing each other around and it's very like physical comedy. And they get into an argument where Paul says, I, you know, I feel like an idiot wearing these women's clothes and this is all your fault. And Stanley says, it's no pleasure living in the house with you. And it's I don't this is a oh, this is the scene that really stood out to me as seeming like slapstick, like odd couple bickering. And it keeps going. This is the morning after that girl was killed, right? Right. Yeah. So I guess we should elaborate real quick. After Stanley is is protected by Aunt Martha from this uh, treacherous little girl, uh, she leaves the house and Aunt Martha pursues her out into the woods and stabs her to death. Right. So she is dead, but Stanley does not find out what happened to her through, I guess, for the entirety of the film. As far as no. Stanley goes, she just went missing. Yep. He actually says that maybe she hooked up with somebody else. Yeah. So this was the, the conversation the next morning. So Paul kind of gives off this, uh, this vibe that he didn't really want to be bothered with all this stuff. He just kind of wants to lay low and chill out with stan right i think that's what he imagined that like you know he tells stanley that i snuck you out of baltimore and i've kept you out of trouble and i feed you and i give you money and you're in debt to me and it i think what he imagined is that the two of them would run away he would blame the murder the original murder on stanley and it convinced Stanley that he would had done it, and that would get Stanley to stay in hiding with him, and that they could just be inside all the time and have this like idyllic uh, domestic relationship and be a couple. Yeah, that sums it up. Although I should mention that this this whole morning diatribe that that Paul goes on about how much I do for you, Stanley, and et cetera it really comes off sounding like a parent rather than like a over-controlling lover. Exactly. He even calls, he even calls Stanley young man a few times. And, and that's what I'm saying is like, sometimes they seem like lovers. Sometimes Paul sincerely seems like aunt Martha. So Stanley is uh, 18 in the script probably um probably played by like some guy in his early 20s mid 20s if i had to guess the age discrepancy isn't that crazy no i think i think paul is probably like 40 yeah i would guess late 30s i think stanley is like maybe 30 paul is like maybe 40 so yeah there's not the there's not the parent child age discrepancy but like this scene evolves into Paul is telling Stanley that 
he needs to get a haircut, ostensibly so that he does not look like the wanted poster. But there's also the suggestion that like Paul just thinks that would be the proper thing or like that's what he wants is for Stanley to have short hair. But Stanley doesn't want to cut his hair. So Paul is chasing Stanley with a pair of scissors and Stanley piles up all this furniture in front of the door to like keep Paul from getting in the room. And he's laughing hysterically. And again, these are the kind of scenes in the movie that don't work for me. Like it's, it, it's not funny. So it just doesn't, it just feels awkward. Okay. So I mostly agree with you that, that, that this comedy kind of falls flat in, you know, the Lord's year 2022, but when it comes to the haircut, I actually really like the distinction that, yeah, she's, yeah, she, whatever, Aunt Martha is acting like, you know, this is this is what little kids have to do. They have to get haircuts so they look nice. But it's actually so that the police have a harder time recognizing him. Like, I like that, that, that uh, twist on what should be like common sense for a criminal who's you know on the lamb from the law well the the characters we haven't really talked about are the neighbors so let's talk about them there's a woman who lives across the street and she has a daughter who i think is like stanley's age like late teens and but she's pregnant with a with a baby and she is really desperate to become Martha's best friend. Like she's over there every day trying to talk to Martha and bringing her like food and just trying to be her friend. And and she thinks that Stanley and her daughter should get together and like be a couple. I mean, Hey, this is, this is before social networking. This is how you had to meet people aggressively going to their house and ringing the doorbell. Yeah, I mean, she is desperate. Like, she she rings the doorbell over and over and over again for, like, three minutes before she gives up. Martha has made it very clear that she wants nothing to do with this woman. And this woman is um, very obviously pregnant. You You can tell from, like, a mile away. And it's because they want you to not forget this. Yeah, this is... We'll get to the the culmination of the pregnancy in a little bit. What do you think of these characters overall? Like, were they a good addition to the movie? Were they just random? In order to determine if they were a good, a good addition to the film, you have to really ask yourself, did this film have a good ending? Did this film like culminate into like a, 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 a finale that you would expect these two jewel thieves to get into i actually i think the ending is the best part of this movie best part okay and a case absolutely necessary you needed these characters yeah all right so let's go ahead and talk about the ending i i think that well before we talk about the ending we should probably mention hubert real quick because he is a part of it all right so yeah hubert is another guy from baltimore and he has he has found Stanley and gets Stanley to take him back to the house. And he's the guy earlier I said was blackmailing them to get to stay. Hubert is a character. He, uh, he is definitely a junkie. 
and he's into astrology. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is that? Um, he's, he, there's a moment where he confronts Paul and Paul is like, why are you here? Like, what, what is it you want? And Hubert says, destiny brought me here. Destiny and the Zodiac. Everything in my life is guided by the stars. This doesn't I, come off as ridiculous as it sounds. Like this character seems completely like real, like a real person. Yeah, I like this character. Like he's, it's so mundane for him that like, of course, of course, astrology, like that's, that's how we should all live our lives. And it's him and Paul almost develop like a husband wife relationship where like they're talking about what's best for Stanley and like, how to how to raise him it's very i i I don't know if they were trying to be funny or if i mean just like everything with this movie i don't know if it's trying to be funny or if it's trying to be like psychologically deep but i found it funny the way they adopted this these roles i think there's even a point where paul is is saying like man i don't think things are working out with stanley and hubert's like yeah it just wasn't written in the stars (laughs) <laughs> are compatible <laughs> you don't have compatible signs and by the way my impression was that hubert also thinks they're in a relationship and is totally accepting of it and yeah. thinks it's totally normal yeah progressive hubert over here it it does come off as very progressive it 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 seems like to him this is totally normal I mean, what's also totally normal to him is, you know, blackmailing your friends to, you know, get free room, food and board. Yeah. So there there's a point where he where Paul and Stanley are out of the, the house and he goes looking for the jewels, which we know are hidden in the in the chimney. And he finally finds them. And there's a whole scuffle where he tries to run away from Paul and Stanley and out the front door. And on his way, he runs right into pregnant neighbor and over her. And she is knocked to the ground and he falls on top of her. And she keeps crying and screaming like, don't let my baby die. Like, take care of my baby. And Stanley interprets this to mean I should drive her in my hippie van out to the shed that we have in the backyard and deliver the baby myself. I think he was just trying to get her off the street, like out of trouble. She happens to die on the bed. So then Stanley's like, well, I can't just let the baby die. Right. And decides to perform an impromptu C-section. With like a rusty kitchen knife. Is it rusty? It looks pretty pitiful. Like, Uh I was thinking the whole movie, all the murders in this movie are done with this knife. Yeah. And I kept thinking, I cannot believe this knife can cut anything. It it probably just hasn't been washed. (laughs) Like, it looks very dull. But But I think we're supposed to assume the, the mother has passed. There's nothing we can do for her. Even though she is clearly breathing, there are like so many dead people in this film that are still breathing. The mother is clearly (laughs) breathing and the baby that's supposed to be alive is clearly not. The baby is like a doll. 
Wait, uh, was the baby supposed to be dead, though? No, I think the baby's supposed to be alive. Yeah, I just assumed it was supposed to be alive. Yeah, but it, but it, we don't, it does not look alive. It looks like a baby doll wrapped in some bloody cloths. It doesn't make noise, though. Nope. No, I just thought of this. Okay, so the baby isn't making noise. Typically, most infants do make some kind of sound when, when they are conceived. Or not conceived. When they are delivered. <laughs> Apparently, I didn't. I was a special case. But most, most do. And this baby doesn't make any noise. And what happens once Hubert gets a flees from the scene, Aunt Martha chases him down and shoots him dead in a golf course, taking the jewels back. When that is going on, Stanley is performing the impromptu C-section. Once Aunt Martha and Stanley meet back up at the house, you know, Aunt Martha's like, we got to get the fuck out of here. You know, the cops are going to be on their way. This is a huge scene. That is when Stanley takes the kid and leaves it on the doorstep for Vicky to find the uh, the neighbor's adult daughter. And then she Vicky screams. Yes, yeah, screams. Sees the infant on the doorstep. Do you think that's because the child was dead? I'm thinking that now. I didn't think yeah, it when I, I was watching the movie. That at the time. No, but that makes sense. So not only did Stanley perform a, a C-section, he either might have, well, he might have killed the kid inadvertently. I mean, who knows, though? I mean, think about this way. Vicky is, or not, Vicky's mom is trampled in the front yard on grass before she dies, like, by one dude. If all it takes is a fall on the grass to kill you, I mean, you, you probably have a lot of other issues going on. Well, Vicky did say earlier that she had a bad heart or she had heart trouble, and that's why uh, she shouldn't be having a baby this late in life. That's right. And then okay. after she dies, Stanley tells Paul it must have been her heart. Oh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. But this whole sequence with the delivery of the baby and the running away, like this is where the movie starts to work for me. It's odd because on the one hand, this is where it gets incredibly ridiculous and could easily be played over the top. But this is also where the tone settles down into something that's actually kind of serious and creepy, disturbing even. Like the rest of the movie, this is the most effective part. I definitely didn't expect it to go grindhouse in the very the very last 20 minutes. Um you know, it was a little jarring at first. Like this just got this went this this. OK, so the movie is ridiculous on principle. Right. But like the plot is still relatively grounded for a for a movie with just taboo themes in the background. Right. Up until this point. Now everything just explodes because it only gets crazier from here. Yeah, so let's talk about this part in, in detail. So after the drop-off of the baby, Stanley and Paul escape to what I guess is an old movie studio. There's, It's like a warehouse, and it's very dark inside, but there's lots of props around. And there's these big like searchlights 
So you think this is a movie studio? Yeah, this is some kind of movie studio. Yeah, so first they dump a big trunk with the mother's body in it over a bridge into a river. And in the process of doing that, Paul injures his leg. So Paul is limping, and the two of them go into this warehouse or movie studio, and Paul goes off to find water to clean his leg. And Stanley decides that he's tired of running. He's going to call the police and turn himself in. And he's like, why is this phone not working? (laughs) It's because it's a prop. (laughs) It's not a real phone. (laughs) I actually thought this was pretty funny. Yeah. So Aunt Martha catches him trying to make the phone call. Takes out the the end of the the cable to show him it's not plugged into anything because it's not real. And then whips him in the face with it. Yeah. <laughs> and this and this is where like the gloves come off and Paul is like, you know, you're an idiot. And he says, they're not going to put you in jail. They're after me. Like, I killed that woman in Baltimore. And he says, I'd kill that bitch again if, if I caught her fooling around with you. And And so... Now it turns into Paul is after Stanley because he can't trust him anymore. And it's a whole like cat and mouse stalking scene through this dark movie studio. I I think this scene's pretty effective too. Yeah. And it's this is where uh, another part where you see how like weird this movie is. Paul uses a giant spotlight to find Stanley and then he catches him and ties him up and writes slut on his forehead. In lipstick, I think. Yeah. Takes off his pants, like laughing maniacally, wraps a belt around his neck and then uses the belt to like pull him in. I think he's trying to kiss him, but I couldn't really tell because he starts to stab him in the stomach after this could be that he could be trying to like force an erection so i think it was probably a combination of a lot of things going on but either way yeah aunt martha loses her cool and absolutely stabs stanley to death i was not expecting him to die in this film uh i started to expect it but only like when this scene started i was like "Uh, this is gonna end up with him being dead Man, I thought the police were going to come interrupt this because we didn't mention that as Stanley and Paul are um, coming into this this warehouse studio, they are spotted by someone outside, a third party, who thought their behavior was suspicious and called the police. And then the police kind of took the description and figured out, hey, these are the these are the assholes we're looking for. It it is odd that like. There's a scene where we see the police and the in the police station like talking about this situation and and te- saying that they're going to go out and look for these guys. But that's the only scene we get in the whole movie from the police point of view. I just found that very odd. I mean there wasn't really an investigation in in any other way, right? Like the police weren't really investigating the disappearance of the blonde girl or um, Hubert's friend, who we didn't mention, but Hubert had a friend coming to look for him. 
that uh, Paul got wind of in the middle of the night and killed her as she was snooping around the house. Yeah, it's just it's this scene seems like an afterthought, like it was not necessary. It didn't have to show us things from the cops point of view or it could have turned the cops into like a whole side story. But to just have this one scene seemed odd. I'm glad they didn't give us the law enforcement perspective the entire time, because then I think this movie would have been way more traditional. Yeah, for sure. Can you imagine them trying to do like slapstick comedy with law enforcement. Like, I don't know. I, I, didn't, I wouldn't want to deal with that. It wouldn't work. But I should say that one of the cops is played by Brad Grinter, who directed the movie Blood Feast or um, Blood Freak, which is the, the turkey monster movie. Another Florida classic. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, but I'm already ashamed of it. it it's, it's a movie where a guy starts working at an experimental turkey farm. And by being exposed to chemicals, his head turns into the head of a turkey and he runs around and kills people. Wow. It's like slasher combined with monster movie combined with anti-drug propaganda film because he he it, it, this whole thing gets initiated by him smoking weed at a party naturally right what the thc mixes with uh with like turkey feed chemicals it, it's not that uh it's not that clear but something like that okay it's <laughs> it it needs to be seen it needs to be seen just to be believed. It's Is it something kind of we movie. would do do for this? Yeah. Is it that far out there? Yeah. For oh sure, it's 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 among the weirdest things we've done. That doesn't mean it's good, <laughs> but it's very strange. All right. Well, you you heard it here first. Future potential episode: homicidal turkey man. Yep. Blood Where freak. Turkey? Yeah. Yep. Turkey monster. All right, so back to sometimes Aunt Martha does dreadful things. Um, so immediately Paul regrets killing Stanley. And he's like, you forced me to do it. I didn't want to hurt you. And uh, he shoots himself in the head. And that's the end. Did, did you expect Paul to die? No, I didn't expect this to happen at all. I thought worst case scenario, they probably would get caught by the police and go to prison. At this point, did you want Paul to die? Uh, no, I, I didn't really have a... I don't think I really had a feeling of wanting anyone in this film to die. You know, I thought about... Around this point in the movie, I thought about that. I was thinking, like, who am I supposed to identify with in this movie? Or sympathize with, at the very least? Like, who's my protagonist? And I thought, you know, I really don't like Paul. Like, Paul's pretty shitty. And, uh, but I do like Stanley. Like, he's really dumb, but he's pretty innocent. And, like, he never intended for anything bad to happen. Uh, so I was rooting for Stanley to make it. Stanley definitely didn't hurt anybody. Nope. Like, you know, you kind of want it, you kind of want him and Vicky to work out, but you know, it's not going to happen. No, it's like the glimmer of hope for a normal future that he might have. Honestly, we have watched so many untraditional narrative structures 
on on this this show like for this show that i i no longer try to do things like find a character to empathize with like i just i if it happens it happens but i definitely don't go actively seeking that sort of thing anymore i can't go in with any expectations for these films because they're all radically different for for various reasons like who do you sympathize with in janie right uh yeah there's no one in that one <laughs> nobody <laughs> but i don't think you watch that movie to get attached to a protagonist you know, I like it that way. I, I like how you ca you can't have expectations with a lot of these movies because in a better movie or in a more traditional movie, we would have been like the movie would have made it easy for us to identify with Stanley and it would have turned him into a real protagonist and would have introduced him to Vicky earlier so that it could build up the hope that maybe he and Vicky would escape somehow or end up together. And then we would feel really devastated when that hope was crushed. But this movie doesn't manage to orchestrate any of that. It just kind of throws the characters out there and hopes it works. Yeah, now you mentioned it. The only time Stanley and Vicky meet, the dialogue that they exchange with Vicky talking about herself makes it sound like they had spoken before, but they clearly haven't. I don't think anything was taken out of the film either. No, I got the impression that they had met before because one of them says like, oh, I haven't I don't see you around much anymore. And, and so I thought that it, they'd at least like been introduced to one another. And Vicky is just constantly making this uh, this like advertisement proposition for herself where she's trying to argue like, hey, you know, I may not do drugs, but I can be just as cool as anybody else. Yeah. She's like, are you are you, you like shocking me, don't you? Because you think I'm so innocent, but. Did you ever think that I don't go to parties or do drugs because I'm just not into those things? <laughs> and I was like, how is that different? No, that's not different at all. But he, he says, don't be uptight. I like you. And she says, I like you too. I think we could be very good friends. And uh, invites him over to listen to some new records. And, uh, and Stanley says, sounds groovy. Sounds groovy. He's got a very hippie thing going on. He's got like his snakeskin pants and then an open vest with no shirt underneath. That's yeah, his he outfit. He wear a shirt the entire film. It's a nope. vest and snakeskin pants the whole way. I, you know, I actually did consider Stanley might be gay when they finally show his van. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has like a hippie van. But it's like pink and full of like unicorns and like fluffy cartoon eyes and dude like you know law enforcement would have saw this thing like a mile away looking for these two yeah i am amazed that they got anywhere with this van which is so clearly idiosyncratic and recognizable i mean even paul says that like i've been telling you to get rid of that van because it, they're gonna recognize us I feel like there should have been a scene where maybe Paul went out and just like slathered the van in paint. Yeah, that could have made sense. But I, I wanted to ask you before we move on from that scene, 
Paul kicks Stanley out to go do the dishes or something and is talking to Vicky alone. And Vicky's saying that she came over to see Paul or to see Aunt Martha because her mom shouldn't be having this baby. She's too old to have it. And this is where we find out about her heart problem. And well, then that's you it. You find out about her heart problem if you're paying attention, apparently. Yeah, but this is like the weirdest <laughs> this is the weirdest visit ever. Like, what was the point of this visit? Why did she come over? I guess just exposition to set up for the mom's death. I guess. It was very weird. She's like, I know my mom must be a nuisance, like running over here all the time. Well, yeah, you know, it's natural to be embarrassed at that. I could, that's fine. But it it, it does kind of get ridiculous when she starts talking about like the mom's marital problems and how she's only keep keeping the baby to try to get the the father to come back. Yeah, it's it's very it's it's like setting up a whole side story in a single scene that never goes anywhere. It's kind of like the the writer was thinking. You know, I've had too many scenes with just Paul and Stanley. Better throw in some more characters. Hey, here's a funny joke. What if she's just having a child to get her husband to come back? Ha <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you really can't tell. Oh. But anyway, let's let's start to wrap this up. Do you have anything else you want to talk about before we get to final thoughts? No, I think we actually covered everything. All right. Well, why don't you wrap it up and give a rating out of four? Yeah, we'll keep this one brief. So sometimes Aunt Martha does dreadful things. Yeah, she she does some pretty dreadful things in this film. In fact, I, th- I think she does all the dreadful things. This movie uh, has a lot of a lot of um, panned reviews on websites. Uh, after I saw the film, I looked around a little bit because I had never heard of this before. I wanted to know a little bit more about it before we talked about it. And uh, yeah, I'm convinced this is like a a really obscure cult film. I can't really tell you how big that cult be, but I'm sure it exists. It's kind of uh, unfortunate though, that this is so obscure because I think uh, this is definitely worth watching. Even if it's not exactly one of the best films we've covered on this podcast. Again, you're watching this movie for the relationship dynamics between the main characters of Paul and Stanley or, you know, Aunt Martha and Stanley, depending on the scene. And then, um, you know, when Hubert gets thrown into the mix, you know, that adds another layer of uh, social interaction that really um, makes you think about the intentions and maybe opinions of the time that this film was made. That said, there are uh, there is a pacing issue especially about um, halfway through the film where there might be just be a little bit too much expositional dialogue. I think this movie runs about an hour 30 altogether. So it's not the biggest deal. It's not like you're wasting a ton of time here, but as a whole, I still think this is worth watching. If, um, if you're into like obscure, maybe like old dated opinions on like queer culture, from this time period, you can get like, um, you know, one viewpoint of how maybe cross-dressing and homosexuality reviewed and, and the grand scheme of things. Um, the end is really the um, payoff of the lull and content in the middle of the film. 
And I think it does kind of wrap it up all together. I wish that the film was more consistent in tone. Um, I'm not crazy about the domestic comedy aspects of this film. As I mentioned, this is definitely a screenplay with an identity crisis as it tries to do too many things at once. But at the very least, there is an interesting uh, cast of characters that are all trying to do too much at the same time. Really, the big theme here is like the search for identity, right? You have Paul, who is absolutely unhinged, who then starts to wonder, like, he, he kind of resents cross-dressing at first, but then you can obviously see that he's getting like way too into it and integrating it to his personality and how he affects his relationship with Stanley. Stanley is like 18, still developing sexually, trying to figure out what he wants out of life. I don't necessarily think he, he was gay in this film, but you can certainly see him as a queer figure. I think, again, with modern interpretations, he's probably more viewed as um, ace. And you can um, and you can kind of I think that really just offers the different lens into the film, even though the writer 100 percent didn't intend anything for that. And then, um, yeah, I think that pretty much wraps it up. I, I do think this is worth watching, although this is kind of just like a solid two star film for me because it does have some really strong aspects, but I just wish it was a little more consistent. Although, again, I guess it's inconsistency is a pretty solid uh, theme in this film altogether. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what doesn't work about this movie for me is the attempts at humor and the, I guess, some of the pacing and then maybe it's outdated outdated or borderline offensive views um about cross-dressing or homosexuality or or transness or however you want to characterize um the main character but what i like about this movie is what i like a lot about a lot of 70s movies is that there's so many different things going on with the characters that aren't spelled out for us they're just kind of thrown out there and it gives us the impression of real complex people like it imagine if a movie was made today about a character cross-dressing the cross-dressing would be the focus of the whole movie and it would all be trying to dive in and like help us understand why the character cross-dresses or if the movie was about like an asexual character grappling with his identity, it would be all about that. Or if it was a slasher movie, it would be all about the killings. But in this movie, you've got all these different ingredients thrown together. And like, yeah, it doesn't make a neat, tidy narrative, but it makes it really interesting to think about and talk about the characters. And that's what I wish we had more of today. Like a lot of people don't dig on 70s movies and seem confused when I recommend them. I'm talking specifically about low-budget 70s horror, but this is the kind of feature, um, this is the kind of thing I like about them, where even if the movie doesn't entirely work, it's still interesting to think about and to talk about the characters. I mean, beyond that, I think the acting in this movie is pretty solid. Visually, it's really boring, except when it gets psychedelic. And I like the psychedelic scenes, uh, the the like party scenes where Stanley and his friends are doing drugs, I think are really interesting. They've got a very deviation vibe. 
So I'm kind of disappointed that the, this director and our main actor didn't really do anything else because maybe they could have evolved past this and like produce some better work. But anyway, I'm going to go, I'm going to give it two and a half. Did you get uh, like John Waters vibes during this film? No. Not at all. No, because John Waters is like everything John Waters is doing in his movies is intentionally transgressive and subversive. And the aim of that subversion is to like to mock the straight aversion to queer culture and and gay lifestyles. And here I think that the movie is more using the queerness as a horror element to say, like, isn't this weird and creepy, like how people act like this? Or isn't this ridiculous? Like it's this movie is almost playing to the expectations of straight people, I think, who are think going to think that these things are bizarre. Does that distinction make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that that's that's how I feel about it. Okay. Why did you feel John Waters vibes? Not necessarily, um, but I I saw a couple like opinions out there that kind of tried to relate it to John Waters, but I think it was mostly just because there's queer content, and it's not necessarily one for. I don't think you can like make a one by one comparison, of course, but yeah, I just ask. So next week we're going to do the first film directed by Don Jackson more famous for um, Hell Comes to Frogtown and uh, one of my personal favorites, Rollerblade. And, and that's The Demon Lover, also known as Devil Master. Uh, this was one of the first movies that Gunnar Hansen was ever in, who, who played Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, if you haven't seen it, it it's incredibly low budget and, and amateurish, but there's something about it that I, I really like. It's from 1976, and it, it's right there at the start of the Satanic Panic, and is is jumping on uh, a trend that was going to become more prominent, I think, in the 80s, which is this paranoia about young people being involved in Satanic cults. Uh, came out on Unicorn Video. The box is awesome. So, yeah, I, I really recommend people check out The Demon Lover and then join us next week. Uh, Leland, do you have any last words? Yeah, so for all uh, five people that, that listen to us consistently, let us know if you prefer this whole non-walkthrough format or if you'd rather us hold your hand and, and talk about the story from start to finish. We really want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, you know, I kind of think some movies fit one format better and others fit the other format better. So uh, unless we hear... a an overwhelming response in favor of one or the other, I think we'll just keep mixing it up, depending on the movie. And as always, thank you for your continued support. Beautiful. All right, everybody, have a good week, and join us next week to discuss The Demon Lover.